0: Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Before we start, we want to issue a disclaimer. Conversations hosted by PageCast are happening from all corners of the world, so if we do have any inconsistencies with sound, we ask for your understanding as a listener. In today's episode, award-winning South African journalist and crime fighter, Devi Sankri-Governor, will be in conversation with one of South Africa's most loved crime writers, Dion Mayer. They will be chatting about his book *Dark Flood*, and you will get to know more about Dion as a person and what fuels his creative writing passion. Enjoy. Welcome to the first episode of Pagecast, which is proudly brought to you by Jonathan Paul Publishers. I'm Davy, and I'm so thrilled. To be joined by the acclaimed king of South African crime, Dion Mayer, with this particular episode of PageCast. Now, we're going to be talking about a lot of things, including Dion's life, we're going to get the story behind the story, and delve into his latest novel, Dark Flood. Thanks so much for joining me on PageCast,
1: Dion. A real pleasure and a privilege to be here. And I understand this is the inaugural edition of the podcast, so that makes it very cool. It's very
0: cool, but it also means there's obviously clearly no pressure on the two of us to make this work right
1: as if we needed
0: <laughs> so, so i was particularly excited to interview you because in all these years you and i have never actually done an interview and in a way both of us almost do the same thing from different sides so i catch crops, and you write about
1: them exactly <laughs> we're in the same business just different branches
0: Totally different branches. So I'm going to start at the most obvious place. Your entire journey with books. When did you realize that you're going to be a storyteller and that you could actually do this?
1: Well, I, I still, I'm still not sure if I can actually do this. Uh, you know, with every book, there is so much doubt, and you, you never know if it's going to work. But I, you know, it's 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 a it's an interesting question because. It took me a very long time to realize that that i I could actually make a living from this and that my books will continue to be published, even after my well especially after my first novel in Afrikaans was published. I was very unsure if I would get another publisher because the first book didn 't do well it, it, it was such a, a strange journey because all these great things happened and I couldn't believe it. And I thought, well, this is temporary. You know, I have to hang on to my day job because this is not going to last. I got lucky a little bit. But it's, it's still, I mean, I, I wanted to write and I wanted to tell stories from a, a fairly young age. I, I often tell the story of how at the age of about nine or 10 years old, waiting for my father to come fetch us at the store. I grew up in store, and uh, my father took us through the library quite often. And I sat in front of the library on this brick wall under the pepper tree reading the books that we've just taken out of the library. I had, for the first time, this realization that someone wrote this book, someone created this wonderful world into which I can escape, and I would love to do that. I would not thinking I want to be an author one day, but just I wanted to tell stories too. And from there, it, I wrote a lot of fiction when I was in high school. I had a wonderful English teacher, Mrs. DeBrain, who encouraged me, who gave me an extra essay book and said, "Write as much as you want. I'll take a look at it." She was always encouraging me. But that was, you know, for the love of, of writing, for the love of telling stories. I never thought that growing up in Clarksdorp in a, in a, a blue-collar neighborhood where uh, if you wanted to become something, you had to go to university and study to become a teacher, a lawyer, or a doctor. Being an author was never on the cards. It was never an option. So I I never entertained the idea. And I, I sort of kept on dabbling in writing. Then I became a journalist and writing became my job, but, but writing news, uh, eventually I got into advertising, got into management, finally. And I think when I stopped writing for a living, you know, either journalism or advertising, copywriting, I think... I had the creative energy that needed an outlet, so I started writing short stories. Because just to make more money, I was a single parent, I had two kids in my care. Times were tough, so I started writing short stories in the hope of making a little bit of money on the side. And that sort of escalated slowly over two or three years into finally attempting my first novel which was published uh, and did not sell well. I think at the time, uh, in, especially in Afrikaans, this was just uh, post-apartheid, um, Afrikaans crime fiction or suspense fiction was fairly unknown to the publishers and to the readers.
0: But how old were you at the time now when you published your first
1: book? I was 30, 36, 35, 36
0: I'm quite inspired by that because what it does show is that everyone has this idea that you do well from the very beginning and you do it from, you know, from, from the go. And that's not necessarily true.
1: No, I was very much a late But You know, life happens. I I never, I had to work for a living. I was a single breadwinner. There was never the luxury of dabbling in, in, in writing. From the word go, it it had to earn uh, some extra cash, and I'm I'm quite happy that I started late because I think I can tell you the story. I worked at the University of the Free State in my sort of mid twenties, yep. and I tried to write a novel while I was working there, and I did about fifty pages, and I. Uh, had the good fortune of realizing that it was very bad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh no way!
1: Yeah, and I, I sort of sat back and had a look at the writing, and I thought, what's what's the problem here? Why isn't this as good as the stuff that that I'm reading? And the conclusion that I came to was that I haven't lived enough. And so by the time in my mid-thirties I had lived more, I, uh, I had more insight in my own psyche, and I think in being human and the struggles uh, and the travails that you have to put your character it is through. So I think the timing eventually was good for me. Also, the sad fact that under apartheid, it was just impossible to write crime fiction.
0: Why is
1: that? Well, you know, first of all, I think the police detective is a representative of the state, and the state should be representative of law and order and good governance, and that sort of thing. And you, I just couldn't. I, you know, you just couldn't do that. So it was only the end of apartheid that gave me the freedom to, to start writing the kind of stories that I wanted to write. But as I say, even if I had tried before, um, I don't think I was quite mature enough to do it properly.
0: So here's the thing. You write your first book. Now you're writing in Afrikaans. Smaller market. In your mind, were you thinking already, is it going to stay in Afrikaans or translate it to English? And then maybe we'll see more numbers. What was in your head?
1: Devin, the only thing in my head was hoping that it would get published in Afrikaans. I, when I was at school, and even at university, I did English as a major at university, I wrote most of my fiction and my stories in English. It was only after becoming an Afrikaans journalist that I sort of Fell in love with writing in Afrikaans and discovered the, the the beauty of writing in my mother tongue, and then started to write fiction to, for Afrikaans uh, magazines, short stories, and never even thought of of writing in English. And I, I also must admit that I think it was a little bit easier to get published in Afrikaans. The publishers after the end of apartheid were very hungry for new material, for, for new authors. You know, the, the, suddenly we ha- we had freedom. The government wasn't telling them what they may or may not publish. There was suddenly freedom of speech. There was a great hunger amongst publishers. For new manuscripts, um, which also—that's why I say I, I got lucky in several instances—and that was one of them that I—I I started writing seriously and I started writing novels in a period where publishers were willing to publish stuff that wasn't possible under apartheid.
0: So you write the first one, you say it didn't do well. So how big was that gap before you attempted your second novel?
1: It's—it's uh, it's an interesting story. You know, when I finished my, my first novel was published, it took a while. I think it took them two years after receiving the manuscript to actually publishing it. And when it didn't do well, they said, uh, they also said they, they're not interested in, in other manuscripts from me. Uh, do they just
0: say it like that, Nadion? Do they like say what? it in an email or do they call you and say, don't call
1: us, we'll call you? No, I can't actually remember if it was an email. I mean, this was, pre email here yes of course it, it was probably a, a letter that they said thank you very much. I remember receiving a letter saying there are four hundred copies of your first novel left. We're going to pulp them unless you want to buy as many as you want for one Rand a piece. And I bought 20 immediately because mm-hmm. I thought at least I'll have something to show my grandchildren one day that I did publish a book. But by that time I had finished a second novel which was the first one that got translated. One of the editors who used to work at my first publisher, he joined uh, a new publisher called Mm Quellerie. And he knew of the second novel of mine and he called me up and he said, look, I would like to publish this. To me, that was wonderful news. At least somebody would want to publish my second novel. It got published um, as Phoenix. I got a call out of the blue from the former uh, chief executive officer of Tafelberg Publishers. With, he had retired at this stage. And he said he had read this novel and he thought it was good enough for the international market. His daughter-in-law is an agent in London, Isabel Dixon. She's a career girl and uh, she can read Afrikaans. Would I mind if he sent the book to her? And obviously, I was extremely grateful and I said, of course, I don't mind. And Isabel contacted me and she said she would like to represent me on the strength of the second novel. And then we had it translated. For me, that was just a lot of luck and a big surprise because I never entertained the idea that a book would be translated. My biggest struggle was just to get it published in Afrikaans. And then that was the novel that, first of all, she she got me, Hodder and Stoughton, uh, the British publisher, and soon after sold it to uh, a French publisher. And that was the sort of the beginning. Um, I, I'm still in awe of everything that she's done for me uh, and for my good fortune.
0: Do you sometimes wish you could just send that letter back to the- the first publisher and
1: say well what do you have to say now? You know I mean my, I, I still think I was very lucky. Uh, there are so many authors who write brilliant manuscripts and they have a lot of rejections for years. For me it was uh, a matter of three years until my second novel and being published internationally so I still think I was very fortunate. I think it's always better to have a more difficult path towards success than if it happens too easy and too quickly, I think things can go wrong. So my, my journey as becoming a full-time author um, has always left me very grateful for the whole process and still motivates me every day to, to keep on trying to do better, to, to write better, to, uh, to improve on my previous book. And I think if it happened too quickly, perhaps that would not have been the case.
0: Let's let's get to the, the nub of this now, Dark Flood. So I'm not going to do a summary. I want you to do the summary, but you're going to have to do it like trailer version, <laughs> uh, without revealing too much, but just right. enough so that people buy. Go out and buy the book.
1: Right. Let me try. It's a Benny, Chrysler and Vaughn Cupid mystery. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of a sequel in a certain sense to the previous uh, novel called The Last Hunt. At the end of the last time, Benny and Vaughan are in deep trouble because they've done things that are not permitted by the South African police services. So at the beginning of the dark flood, They uh, are very worried they're going to either lose their jobs or get sent to uh, a police station that is really bad news. And eventually they end up getting sent to Stellenbosch, where they are immediately confronted with a missing student who probably went boozing over the weekend and hasn't returned, which is for two former Hawks detectives, is very lowbrow. Uh, Investigation and they also need to take a look at the apparent disappearance of uh, a very famous Stellenbosch businessman who is also a corporate swindler. Uh, and it's these two cases that take up the book um, and gets to be quite big cases, much bigger than they ever expected.
0: So we first met Benny a while ago, um, and now he's the main character in Dark Flood. But when you first came up with the character of Benny Giesel, was this the plan, that he would evolve in this way?
1: No, it was definitely not. Uh, it was my first translated novel, Dead Before Dying, uh, I needed for a single scene uh, a drunk copper colleague of the protagonist Matthew Béart to just walk in uh, and spoil his fun. Uh, so I created a character absolutely on the fly, uh, an alcoholic and drunk detective. I usually when I, I create major characters, I spend a lot of time thinking about their names, because I know I have to live with this name and surname for the whole book. It's got to feel right. It's got to, it's got to say something. But in this case, I didn't think long and hard because I thought that this was going to be a character that was going to be on the page, maybe two or three pages and then go away. So I named the character after the son of my favorite teacher in high school, ben, Mr. Ben Grissel. Uh, his son was called Benny and sort of this detective that I created uh, sort of looked like Benny Shressel and he also looked like uh, a detective that I met at the Murder and Robbery Squad when I did research for the book Um, and then started writing this Benny Shressel character into Dead Before Dying and the strangest thing happened I had so much fun with him as a character that I gave him more and more pages and by the end of the book he was one of the major characters um, and I liked him so much that I thought, wow, well, if I find the right story for him, I'd love to make him a protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got around to doing that in, in uh, the novel Devil's Peak, I had a bit of a problem because, you know, the the alcoholic detective is a, a bit of a cliche in crime fiction. Uh, and I realized that immediately if I wanted to use this Benny Schrieff I had to do something different, something different to to a lot of other similar characters in crime fiction, whether it's American or British or uh, Scandinavian. Um, And my uh, attempt was to really research the, the, the disease of alcoholism as deeply as I can to tr- really try and understand it and to make this character battle with the bottle all the time mm-hmm. so that became the Benny Hristel that that um, I finally wrote a whole series of books about but
0: if you had to introduce Benny at a bri four sentences five sentences how would you introduce him you know
1: if I had to introduce him to some friends I'd say this is uh, my friend Benny Hristel, Captain Benny Hristel. he's a um, member of the orcs uh, uh, um, serious and violent crimes unit and uh, please don't offer him anything to drink because he's an alcoholic
0: yeah so they call you the king of south african crime i think that but is totally undisputed but you would have then spent over the series of books spent time with crime fighting agencies but was there something very specific though with dark flood that you had to go and push yourself and gain that particular knowledge
1: benny and vaughn have been in the hawks Uh, since, I think, the second Benny novel. Um, And a lot of the research that I did up to then was with the Hawks in in Belleville. Their headquarters is in Belleville, so I spent a lot of time with them. I had made great contacts there. Uh, So I really knew their setup. I knew what their offices looked like. I knew what their schedules uh, were like, what their modus operandi was like. Uh, but with Benny and Vaughan now coming to Stellenbosch to become uh, detectives at the station here, uh, totally, diff- totally different ball game. So I had to um, get into the uh, Stellenbosch police station. Uh, the, the most kind uh, station commissioner allowed me in. He allowed me to attend meetings with the Stellenbosch detectives. They sit separate from uh, the police station itself. So I spent time with the detectives. A couple of specific detectives that I spent a lot of time with, that afterwards also answered my questions on email because as you write, you are confronted with with new and interesting problems. So that was a a big learning curve for me. Obviously, I also had to speak to you at university. What happens when a student goes missing at the university? what uh, systems are in place to try and find this guy what do they do so I did a lot of research on that and then obviously also uh, on uh, if there's a a huge corporate scandal in Stellenbosch um, huge fraud that um, touches the lives of of a lot of inhabitants of Stellenbosch what would the influence be on the property market and on businesses and that sort of thing luckily there was a case study uh, the Steinhoff saga was very much like that so I had that as a case study to look into um, but there I did a lot of research on that as well and then finally one of the major characters in the book uh, is a, a female estate agent called Sandra uh, so I spoke to a lot of estate agents in Stenobosch to understand how they work, what their challenges are, what are the funny things happening to them, so those were some of the things that I I, I really had to get my head around
0: So De- Deon in, I mean it's obvious the devil lies in the detail and it's the detail that gives the authenticity to a story plot, um, but also makes the reader feel totally immersed in it because there's a sense of this is how it works in the real world. And you've got to capture that.
1: Yeah, you know, my, I often say my favorite English word is verisimilitude because that is what I what think. What does that mean? It means the feeling of the truth. It's got to feel like the truth. It's sort of the, the texture of truth. Um if you if you manage to put that into your work and and. I I always say that I I would love it if a police a woman or man reads my book and says yes this is what life is like in the South African police services that sort of texture of the truth that that it rings true that it feels real um readers know that it's fiction and they allow through a willful suspension of disbelief they allow you a lot of leeway uh but it's got to feel real uh, it's always interesting that real-life crime is always much stranger than fiction. You know, there's that distinction. You've got to keep it within the bounds of fiction that is totally different from reality. Uh, yep. But it's, you, you, it's got to be convincing. You know, the reader must feel, OK, I I believe that this is possible.
0: Is it vital to have read your other work, though, before you read Dark Flood? Because that when, when with someone like you, who's this prolific, it can be a little bit intimate, and with podcasts like this, the idea is to introduce you to an even, even bigger audience. But now where do I start?
1: You can really start anywhere. Um, I take great care to make sure that if I write a book, uh, there's the, the very good chance that someone will get to meet these characters for the first time. So every book is a standalone. Um, you don't need to go back and start from the beginning. I think it's a little bit more fun, but um, it, it shouldn't make a difference to the book that you're actually reading now.
0: Do you come up with a story, idea, plot and plan? And then, I mean, how do you work it out? Chapter, by chapter. So I'm asking for the secret to the success. <laughs>
1: um it's, it's a tough question to answer because uh, it's, a, it's a weird process. What I do is, as I said, I'm always looking for story ideas, and the really good ones sort of stick in the back of your mind. I have a little notebook. Um, these days, I, I use a digital notebook on my phone and on my computer to make notes of story ideas, but the really good ones... Uh, you just sort of remember. So when I'm finished with a novel and I start thinking about the next one, then I, I usually have a, an idea of what I would like to do. And it's mostly two very separate ideas that come together and create that little spark of, wow, this this could be nice. I think all authors write the kind of books that they would have liked to read. So when a story excites me and I think, wow, I would I would have loved to read that story, then I know I'm, I'm on to the next book. And then, so I have a vague idea of what I want to do, and then I start with research, and the research can be anything from two, three, five, six months, but let's say three months of three months of intense research. I will go talk to people. I will go find specialists in a specific field that I'm uh, exploring in the book. Because the great thing about research is that it multiplies your creative choices. Uh, If you don't do research, you might have one or two ideas of what to do with the story, but the more research you do, the more options you have in terms of where you want to go. Uh, So I'll do a lot of research. By the time I start writing, I know where I want to start, and I have a a fairly good idea of what the ending, of of an ending that could work, that excites me. Um, And then I really discover the book in the writing. Uh, I prefer that sort of freedom. I don't do uh, planning on paper at no all. No
0: skeletons.
1: No skeletons. Because I feel, I find that, that once you have a skeleton, and this is just my way of working. Other authors do it totally differently. But my way of working is that I, I want to find the book in the writing every day. Um, it's, it's such a strange experience. You know, when you start a book... Uh, it takes you several weeks to get your whole head into it until the the book becomes your consciousness for just about every hour of the day. And when you start living the book in that way, then uh, you start figuring it out more and more. You start realizing that there are better endings, and you you know you can choose them, and you write in a different direction towards a new ending. And sometimes I have three or four endings before the final ending. Sometimes I stick to the one that I had in mind from the word go because that remained the best one. But I don't want to tie myself to a specific ending and a specific structure to the book uh, because... That robs you of the, those moments in the writing process when you yeah the magic that happens absolutely. So I I try to to keep it as unconstrained as I can. Uh, my agent Isabel often asks me to write a little synopsis for a publisher for for some of the overseas publishers who are very keen to know what the next book is about, and uh, she wants to sign a new two or three book deal. And then I, I usually come up with a story that I think and work, but is not the one that I'm going to write, just to keep my freedom in, in the writing process.
0: So no skeleton, you keep it all in your head. Now, that may sound easy to you, but for somebody like me on the outside, I think but there's so many characters and they've got to come in and they've got to come out. How do you keep track of all that, all in your head?
1: Yes, you know, it's writing is a very intense experience. So once your head is in this book and you live it and you think about it all the time, whether you're driving or in the evening when you go to bed, in the morning that you wake up, um, my long-suffering wife is so kind because she knows that once I'm lost in the book, I'm a little bit absent. Uh, but then that's your world. That's your whole experience. That's... Uh, and it's very much in your mind it's you can't forget it's not like reading a book where you know if you put the book down for a couple of days you have to go recheck the names of the characters that sort of thing mm. you are living and breathing it uh, to such an intense extent that uh, you 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 don't forget anything
0: so start to finish roughly how long would it take you to actually write it
1: um, let's say I d- didn't have to do any book tours, um, <laughs> hint, hint. yeah, then, uh, it would probably take me five months. Um, but with, you know, if, if you're an author, you have to do events and book tours and signings and interviews and, uh, and take a holiday from time to time. So usually it, these days it takes me about 12 to 18 months to, to do the book.
0: And that's now, let's work it out now. You see how deep I'm going here now, Dion? Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, how many hours, what time do you start?
1: No, it's, it's a seven days a week thing. You know, it. Uh, the, the writing the story forces you to sit down and write every day, depending again on uh, my schedule, but let's say I don't have... A, other commitments then I would write seven days a week I'll usually get up fairly early in the morning uh, I love sitting at the computer at six o'clock in the morning and then sort of rewriting what I did the day before have breakfast with Marianne and then continue until at least lunch time so, so that's the first half of the book the second half and especially the last third of the book it consumes you so much that I I write twelve to fourteen hours, sometimes sixteen hours a day. the The last quarter of the book um, is is at six o'clock in the morning until sometimes 10, 11 o'clock at night, because you you, you want to finish. You uh, you know the momentum is very strong, uh, the story is reaching its climax, and it's it's impossible to stop writing.
0: Do you sometimes review what you've written the day before and think, nah? doesn't work we need oh, to go
1: somewhere else all the time you know writing is like any other job you have good days and you have a lot of bad days uh, sometimes you get 200 words down on the page in all the hours that you sit and every word is uh, excruciating and painful to get down because it's just not working um, and then some days you you write a couple of thousand words and you think oh this is good but I, I keep on rewriting um, I often sit down and think wow what, what was I thinking yesterday this this really isn't worth <laughs> writing. Is rewriting that is really the key to it all? Is you've got to keep on rewriting until you think, Well, this is okay,
0: Dion. That's really encouraging because I've come across a lot of really great writers who just have one or two of that kind of experience and then scrap four or five days worth of writing and then think, Well, this is not for me, but you go through exactly the same thing.
1: Yeah, I, I understand their pain. You know, the, the biggest problem with, with writing is that one is so subjective about your own writing. Um, even after the book is published and I hold it in my hand and I open it up, I look at it and I think, wow, is this really the best I could do? This is this is not great. Um, on the one hand, I think that's a, that's a great thing because it keeps you humble and it keeps you wanting to do better. But the danger is that If you are so hard on yourself that you think nothing that you're doing is working, then you're not going to get much done. What I often do if I'm halfway, and this happens with every novel, when I'm halfway, I send the manuscript, uh, that half of the manuscript to uh, my editor, Etienne Blumhoff. And I say, give me your honest opinion. Is this working or not? Because I'm very unsure, and I'm unsure every time. And then he will. He's a very patient man, and he will. And he knows the ritual, so he will come back and say, No, this is working. Don't worry, just continue. And then even when I send the final manuscript to him, you know, there's still that uncertainty. Is this really working? Is this uh, is this as good as um, my previous novel? Hopefully, it's a little bit better. Uh, So it's a a good thing to to be skeptical and to be subjective, but you must not be that subjective that you keep on throwing away stuff. My advice Mm -hmm. to people like that would be um, don't throw it away. Show it to someone objective. Don't show it to your wife or your husband or your mother. Uh, show it to someone in the business who uh, can give you an honest, objective, informed opinion.
0: And just so that we understand the mechanics of it all, after months of putting all this energy into a book, once you hit send and, and it's gone, how long does it normally take before it, it's published? And, and I'm not talking COVID times. I'm talking normal right. times because we're <laughs> going to get back to that soon.
1: Yeah, um, usually about three months, I would say. You know, there's the, the editing process, And then they uh, have to set the book and this proofreaders and fact-checkers and then it's got to get printed and distributed. So it's, it's usually three months for the Afrikaans, three months, and then obviously it's got to be translated into English and the other languages, so that takes another year after the Afrikaans, mostly.
0: Is there a fair amount of letting go that you have to do? Because think about it, you bond with these characters, you bond with the plot and the storyline, and then it moves hands. And, and at some point you have to let go, surely.
1: Yeah, but the, the relief of finishing the that's not a relief, I'm sure. <laughs> that, uh, that I let go quite easily. But, you know, by that time, I've done so much rewriting that I know this is the best that I can do now. And it's a huge relief. When I write that last sentence, I usually jump up and go <laughs> dance around Marianne and say, I'm done, I'm done. Because it's a, it's a huge relief. You know, it's a, it's a marathon um that you that you run and, and to get to that um uh, to the end is is a is a wonderful feeling of enlightenment. Do you take
0: a break now before starting the next one?
1: Yes I do. I um we usually go somewhere Uh, I think it's very important to get that book out of your head and to start thinking about the new one. I always worry, do I have another book in me? So there's a little bit of a panic around that, and then you start thinking about the next one. But I'm not not quick. I I need ideas to simmer. I need them to develop. I need the research to help me to develop them. So uh, that takes some time. Um, But, yes, I do take time off. Um, And then I do a lot of reading as well, because I find it very hard, especially when I'm writing the last half of a new book, I find it impossible to read, um, because Mm -hmm. it's just distracting and Whatever I'm reading, I'm looking at it from the writer's point of view and not a reader's point of view. So um, then usually when I'm finished with a book, I have a whole stack of, of books waiting for me and then I read for a month or so. Just wonderful reading.
0: Do you find, Jan, that you, you start noticing your own bad writing habits? or Because we all get into habits when we do anything. Do you find that you're more circumvent around your own style that perhaps needs to change a little bit or you're aware of where you need to go <laughs>
1: You know, when I when I was an advertising copywriter, I worked with a bunch of guys who were probably the best teachers in the business, um, and they were so meticulous in uh, weighing every word and discussing the the writing and the the. The structure of the writing uh, that those lessons are still very much with me today so when I'm writing I sort of just write and the next morning when I review all those lessons all those rules all those little technical things that ensures good quality writing is there and I look at it from that perspective so I'm I'm very happy to say that um, I So far, I haven't fallen into the trap of, Mm -hmm. of, you know, thinking my writing is great. And it's also a matter of experience. You realize that when you're writing, you've got to allow it to flow freely. But the next day, you've got to tighten it down. You've got to uh, uh, just go through it with a fine tooth comb and and weed out all the, um, the bad stuff.
0: So writing novels is one thing. Now turning those novels uh, and putting it on screens is something else because now that involves a screenplay. Was that a big shift for you? Was it a completely different way of writing?
1: Yes, it was a big shift for me. The funny thing is that when I started writing, the thing that got my short stories going was actually doing script writing in advertising, writing little video scripts for advertising. And I loved it. Um, but at that time, there wasn't really a market for uh, for, for scripts. Um, so I, I always wanted to get back to it. And finally, um, I had the opportunity when, uh, CakeNet did one of my books, Kuarion, as a TV series. And I, uh, I had to, because of circumstances, the, the two scriptwriters that they hired were, were fired within a few days. Um, and they were in trouble and they asked me if I would be willing to write the, the scripts. And for me, it was a, a great joy to get back to something that I loved some years ago. But script writing is totally different from from writing a novel. You know, it's just the fact that uh, making television or movies, there's a budget involved. So every scene that you write, you go think, how much is it going to cost to do this? Um, writing the script, you can only tell the story through what characters do and what they say. In a novel, you can explore the inner world, the inner thoughts of characters, without uh, any problems. In a in a movie or a TV series, you can't do that. So it's a totally different approach. But eventually, there are a lot of similarities. Stories are stories, uh, whether it's a, a short story, a novel, or a screenplay. Um, stories need characters that the viewers or the readers can empathize with and you have to put those characters through a lot to keep the the, the reader or the viewer uh, immersed in it. So in that sense, story and story structure is, is very similar. Um, and eventually they're all stories. It's just a different medium that you're using to tell it.
0: I never knew that because you're right. You can't be having too many action scenes and explosions because that does cost
1: money. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can't have a crowd. If if I, let's say, I wrote a book in which something happened at a rugby game, the uh, Springboks against the British and Irish Lions, with eighty thousand people there, it costs you nothing to write that scene in a in a book, but to create that scene in in a movie or a television series would take days and cost uh, hundreds of thousands of rands. So you've got to keep that in mind. Where do you set your scene? How many characters do you have in there? Uh, how hard is the lighting to do? Mm-hmm. Um, especially in South Africa, where the budgets are much lower, we tend to do as few night scenes as we can because they are so much more expensive. So those are the things that you keep in mind when, when you write a screenplay.
0: You also founded the Kuru Film Company. Now, was there method in that alleged madness at the time?
1: Well, there was, there was the hope. Um my first screenplay I sold to uh um Production company that I wasn't part of, and uh, I always thought that you know, maybe if I get involved, we can do it a little bit better. We can look at certain aspects of of the movie making uh, in in a different light, and that was one of the reasons why we started that company. Uh, I am no longer with Karua Films, I am we started Scene 23 subsequently. Uh, We've been doing that, we made trackers under the uh, Scene 23 banner, Uh, but I, I love. Being involved also on the production side, and mostly I think just to have some form of control over what is being done with the adaptation of my work. I uh, I try not to interfere too much, but you know I I want to just be there in the background to make sure that the quality is what I hope it would be.
0: What was it like the first time that the first scene was shot to a movie and you were there and you saw? your own writing come to life in front of your very eyes.
1: That's, that's one of the, the, the magic moments, you know. Um, the great thing about doing a, a film or a television series is that uh, it's a very collaborative process. My script and my story is taken by a director, by actors, by the art department, uh, by the editor, by the person who um, writes the music for the movie. Uh, and that lifts it to something that is much bigger and better than you ever envisioned, uh, and that is a magical, magical thing. So, so to see these characters, see these actors become the characters and make it their own is—it's a beautiful thing. Um, I've—it's—it's it's the reason why I continue to be involved in the production because uh, it really is a special moment when that happens.
0: So, just going back to the point you made earlier, Diane, about the I mean, the, your books get translated into many, many languages, but there's a trust factor which you perhaps experienced right at the very beginning. Now it's probably like riding a bicycle, you know what needs to happen. But as an author, you need to trust that the translation is accurate, right? Right.
1: Yeah, you know, the English translation is easy because I, I can understand English and I have a wonderful English translator, Laura Segers. Uh, she lives in we were actually with her last week Um, so when Laura Laura sends me batches of about 10 chapters and I go through them uh, and read them to try and make sure that they are as close to the original Afrikaans as is humanly possible and I really believe that um, the, the final product is is an exact copy of the Afrikaans. Obviously, something like Cape Flats Afrikaans uh, will get lost in English. But then, uh, a reader in the UK who's never heard of Cape Flats Afrikaans won't miss it. It's not. It's not something that, that is essential to the success of the story, I think. So, but I do um, have great quality control over the English, and I must also say that all the other translators for all the other languages are such professional people, and with each and every one. Uh, have long email discussions or sometimes Zoom calls in which they would ask me questions and they would ask for photographs of the specific area that the book is set in. So we, we go to a lot of trouble to make sure that uh, they, they work, the translations worth. All the editors of all the publishers overseas can read English, so they also read the, the original or the, the, the English translation and uh, compare that to the French or the German or the whatever language it's in. So um, I think the process. Process uh, protects me, uh, and the people who are involved make sure that uh, it's very high quality.
0: What was the best thing for you about Dark Flood? And and you can see what I'm doing here. I'm trying to edge people towards including Dark Flood on their Christmas gift lists and right. reading lists. What was the best thing for you, though, in terms of writing it? Because if there's something there that stands out for you, it's often what shows in the writing and and the little that people are going for.
1: I think three things I really enjoyed. The first one was We Live in Stellenbosch, and it's the first book that I've set in Stellenbosch in in totality um and I love the place I um, had to share my passion for uh, Stella Bosch that was that was a lot of fun. The second thing was I, as I said I created a female character Sandra Stienberg. and it's the first time that I felt that I... I've created a female character that uh, is um, that I'm happy with. That I'm am satisfied that I've done a solid job with that. I really loved her as a character. I write. I love to write about her. I I loved creating her character. Um, and the third thing is that I think it's the best ending of a novel that I've ever achieved. Uh, I got the idea for the ending sort of midway through the book. and When I got the idea, I thought, well, that's that's very really cool. That's the kind of ending that I would have loved in a novel that I read myself. Uh, so I think the ending is, is a nice little twist in the tale and uh, would leave readers really stunned.
0: Have you started the next book or are you still in the vacation phase?
1: No, alas, I'm not in the vacation phase at all. We're working very hard at the moment on several TV productions, uh, but I have started a new novel. Unfortunately, it's been on the back burner now for a couple of months while we uh, do some script development for for TV, Uh, but I have to get back to the new novel at the end of this month, so... um, uh, not a lot of time left to to do the TV work.
0: Yeah, what do you do for fun? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but and I, I love riding uh, mountain bikes here in Stellenbosch. We try to do that. Uh, four, five times a week. We love traveling. Um, my our oldest daughter uh, married an Italian. They live outside Rome. And I became a grandfather this year, so we love going over there. Wow! Uh, I love Italian food. I love cooking as well, so I do a lot of cooking while we're over there as well. Uh, so, I, yeah, and I, I cook at home too. I love that. We love watching movies. Reading is, is, is very important to me. Uh, and I'm a huge rugby fan, so watching rugby and this, I'm very happy that we are uh, back in full swing in terms of rugby in South Africa. So those are the things that have give me joy and, and uh, that I relax with.
0: So during lockdown, did you see that as an opportunity to buckle down and just write because there was no choice, really?
1: Yeah. You know, lockdown came uh, at the perfect time for me. I When lockdown came last year, which was in March, um I, my schedule for the year was crazy and i didn't know how i was going to finish the new novel um and then lockdown came and suddenly i had all this time and and that was I was one of the few people maybe who were really happy about lockdown. I mean, as bad as it was, mm-hmm. not being able to go out to get some exercise, um, I, it gave me uh, a lot more time on my hands that, um, that I relished.
0: If somebody had told you way back when you were at school, borrowing books from the library and loving reading, that this kid, who was pretty good at Opstel, remember Opstel from,
1: from school? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if
0: someone had told you then, then that this is how it will all turn out, would you have believed
1: No, I would not. You know, I mean, as I said earlier, there was, I had no concept of being an author it was not it was not part of my uh, frame of reference i i didn't know any authors authors were very smart people who smoked pipes and thought deep thoughts if you grow up in claxton that is definitely not our, <laughs> <laughs> your experience so I, I i would have not believed in so i even now sometimes i've i find it hard to believe that that's the way that my life turned out i i, I, mean, I i'm just over the moon
0: Dion, thank you so much for joining me on this inaugural episode of Page Cast. It's just been an absolute pleasure and totally fabulous.
1: Devi, thank you very much. Uh, the privilege and the pleasure was all mine, and uh, hopefully, it's not the last one we do.
0: Dion is the undisputed champion of the South African crime genre. And you can get his latest book, Dark Flood, from all great bookstores. And please do share this podcast with all the great readers out there. I'm Devi Sankhi-Gavinder from everybody at PageCast. Thanks for listening. PageCast, certainly not your average podcast. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.